Would you pray with me? Lord, as we come before you this day in prayer, we ask, Lord, that your grace and your love and mercy would fall upon us. We ask, Lord, more than anything else, that we would know that you are the creator and sustainer of the universe. And as the creator and sustainer, you will lift us up and hold us tight and sustain us through all the things that occur in this world. We thank you, Lord, for the beautiful day that you've given us. We ask, Lord, that we would fill it with praises to your name, that we would tell the world about you, that we would go out into a world that is darkened and dying and withering because of the lack of the gospel, the good news in the world. And we ask, Lord, that we would be your emissaries and ambassadors to bring that good news to the world that so desperately and is dying to do it. And we ask it in your name and for our sake and the people together say, Amen. Amen. Let me invite you to either look at your screen or in your book, number 881, the Apostles' Creed, as we begin by saying, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. tell you a little bit about Bible verses. What does it mean to uh, know your Bible? What do you think? Do we know what the Bible says? Okay, good. The good things about Jesus, maybe good things about God. That's right. And so if we know these things and we hide them in our hearts, then we can share Jesus and God with others, right? So that's very important for us to do. You know, some churches, they have something called Bible Bowls, and they get all the kids together, and they memorize all these Bible verses, and then they get, like, certificates and prizes for knowing the most Bible verses and maybe knowing the most challenging Bible verses and all kinds of things like that. Like, for instance, do you know what the smallest verse in the Bible says? It says, Jesus wept. 
And that means so much in two little words. And then there's one that just about all kids learn in Vacation Bible School, and it's John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Do you know that Bible verse? Well, we've got some work to do, don't we? Yeah. So, work on memorizing John 3.16 so that when you see someone who's having a rough day or maybe they don't know that Jesus loves them, you can say, hey, guess what I heard the other day? I heard that God loves me so much, he loves you too, that he gave his one and only son to die on a cross for us so that when we die, we don't actually die. We can live in eternity with him. You think that would make them feel better? It just might. So work on memorizing John 3.16, okay? All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for these children and for the immense blessing that they are to our church, Father. We ask that you will cover them and their family with grace and mercy and that they will go diligently forward to learning more about you and sharing it with their world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning. morning. Would you pray with me? Dear God, we ask that you will come into this building today and let your spirit rest upon us. Open our ears and open our hearts to hear the message that you have prepared for us. In your name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise God in his mighty firmness. Praise God for his mighty deeds. Praise God. Praise God with trumpet sound. Praise God with lute and harp. Praise God with tambourine and dance. Praise God with strings and lyre. Praise God with sounding cymbals. Praise God with loud crashing cymbals. Let everything that breathes praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. have a letter here I need to read to the congregation. It's from the uh, Bishop William T. Michaelili, I think that's the way he pronounces his name. It's addressed to the chair of the pastor, parish relations committee. So I'd like to read you this letter. As you know, the cabinet of the Tennessee Western Kentucky Conference made a covenant commitment to make appointments with the mission of the church as our first priority. We work diligently and in good faith to try to fulfill this covenant as we made appointments in the Tennessee Western Kentucky Conference. At this time, I am happy to confirm that your pastor will be reappointed for the 2022-2023 conference year. It is important that the congregation hear affirmation of this continued appointment. And, uh, I, and I give thanks for the ministry of our pastor uh, Keith Brown, who continues to be a servant leader among us, and I am, am happy to share with 
that he will be returning as our pastor for 2022 and 2023 conference year. So would you uh, join me in a prayer now uh, for, for our church and for our pastor. Lord Jesus Christ, our living Savior, we give, give you thanks for our church. It is a gift of grace to us. We are deeply grateful for the leadership of Keith Brown who will continue to serve us as pastor, teacher, leader, and friend in Christ. May your grace be upon him and his family, giving peace and joy and confidence as we begin the new conference here together. Open our hearts and minds to receive these gifts you have for us these days as we give thanks for what has been and anticipate what will be our life is in you, O oh God, and through the Holy Spirit we pray this day. And everyone said, Amen. I hope you know that Janice and I are ecstatic that we're coming back for another year, and I hope that you're not too terribly disappointed that I'm coming back for another year. Uh, you have taken us in and helped us and I'm almost ready to figure out what key goes to what door now. And uh, it, it's, that's what it's felt like for the first seven or eight months. But thank you for your prayers, your continued prayers for us. And I ask and covet, covet those prayers to continue. Here are the prayers of the people this day. We lift up Ashley Pugh, Janice Vaughn, Wayne and Jackie Lott, Ed Morris, Scott Whaley, all of those in war, the family of Louise Crabtree, who is my aunt that passed away Thursday night, uh, children and parents and all of the people in Ukraine. And uh, Tammy asked me to make sure that you understood this. Traveling mercies as Dustin is finished for his deployment in Bahrain and his own aircraft coming back this way, coming home. So that is a joyful, joyful occasion. Uh, also be in prayer for Parker Lake, Thanksgiving for the beautiful day and for our guests that we have today. Are there any others you would have us add? Okay, Dr. Campbell. What was the last name? Harkle. Herman Harkle. Are there any others? Are there any others? What was the last name? Okay. Okay. Are there any others that we would add? Yes, please do, Harold. certain ones that brought me food. Uh, 
Janice bought me a, a, a platter that I, I ate two or three days on that. Nikki brought me some good food. Lee brought me some good food. Helen and Heath brought me some good food. Helen and Bill, I mean. Paulette brought me some good food. I appreciate that with my heart, okay? Um, one individual that probably has helped me the most is, is Mr. Joe right here. I have to give him a, a lot of credit because he's always in the motion of what I should do or shouldn't do, okay? And I appreciate that with all my heart, too, okay? But I do appreciate the prayers. I could not say enough about that because it really, really helped. I came back home and stayed. Well, they had me signed up for rehab, but I didn't have to go there. I came back home, I stayed three days, and then I went back to work. I've, I've taken, Friday was my 21st day of uh, um, radiation treatment, and, and I've got to go 30 days of that, so. Uh, and I, I got a good call. God is indeed good. Amen. Amen. Are there any others? You know, we fail sometimes to stop and say thank you for each other's prayers. We don't know when they're praying for us, but we can feel that they are praying, and that's a testimony to the power of prayers and the goodness of God. If there are no others, would you pray with me? Lord, we come to you this day. We come to you this day in a beautiful, beautiful spring day. A day that you have given to us as a present. A day that we will give back to you as our gift to you. What we do with this day, how we fill this day, the activities we involve ourselves in this day, are all things that we hope will bring glory and honor and praise to your name. We ask, Lord, that your grace and mercy cover us and fall upon us. We thank you for the testimony of Harold the testimony of what God's people can do when they covenant together to pray. We can be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ, and we are the hands and feet of Jesus Christ if we'll only allow ourselves to be used, to be used in the world around us in such a way that people look at us and go, what is the reason for the hope that is within you? And we can cheerfully, joyfully say, it is because he is risen he is risen indeed. And so now, Lord, we ask that you would hear our prayers. We ask that you would hear the prayer that you taught your disciples to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. But our ushers come forward at this time. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you love us because we would not know what to do without that love. We would not know where to turn. We would not know what to think. We would definitely not know how to live without the love you have shown us 
and in turn have asked us, told us, commanded us, not only to love you, but to love our neighbors as ourselves. So we ask, Lord, that as we reach out in love to the community around us, we would receive these gifts and tithes and offerings, and they would be used in this place for the advancement of your kingdom. And we ask it in your name. Amen.
Good morning. This morning we're going to start a new series. It's, it seems amazing to me that God continues to put things in front of me that lead me to preach on a particular subject. And many times, maybe I hope that it's also true with you, many times when I preach on that series, I realize what I'm doing is preaching to me. And you just get to listen in. And hopefully it will ricochet off and touch a need in your heart or your mind or in your soul. I want to take some time, and I have no idea. This is, this is the first time I've gone with fear and trembling into a series that I didn't have at least some concept as to how long it would last. We may be here next Christmas. I'm not sure. But the title of the sermon is The God Questions. The God Questions. How do we find biblical answers to questions that we have? Why do we question God? Should we question God? How do we question God? What happens when we question God? The list goes on and on and on. Maybe you've had questions over the years that you've never really gotten answers to. Well, I can promise you one thing. I probably won't have them either. My favorite answer, and sometimes the only one that I can come up with is, I don't know. I trust God, but I don't know the answer to that question. But to the best of my ability, I'll try to find out. I'll try to look into I'll try to continue to read and study, and together we'll learn some answers to some God questions. I think one of the hardest things in the Christian life, at least in my life, is trying to figure out why we don't always understand. Why do we find situations in our lives that we don't comprehend? We see what's happening. We ask ourselves, why is this happening? We can't pinpoint an instance that caused it to happen. We cry out to God, God, why are you letting this happen? Why are you causing this to happen? Are you even interested that this has happened? And we know all of these things. The answer is yes, God is interested. God does know. God does want us to understand. But we have to understand. There's a word that I keep using, understand. We have to understand that it may not be this side of heaven. It may be the other side in eternity before we truly, completely understand. Things like, why do good things happen to bad people? Why do bad people that we know are bad people, they're mean to others, they, are, they put people down, they don't help others, they're just mean people. Why do good things happen to them? Why do bad things happen to great people? People that we look at and we think, wow, these are good people what my father would have called salt of the earth, just downright good every day, love the Lord, would do anything to help you, give you the shirt off their back, give you their last dime kind of people. Why do bad things happen to them? So hold on. We're going to dive in, first of all, to the question that probably most of us have asked multitudes of times in our lives. The key verse, now we're actually using the book of Job which should give you a hint as to what we're about to say this morning. But the key verse is actually Jeremiah 15, 18, and it's part A of verse 18. Very short. Why is my pain unceasing, my wound incurable, refusing to be healed? Now, listen to that again. Why is my pain perpetual and my wound incurable, which refuses to be healed? Will you surely be to me like an unreliable stream as waters that fail? Those are the questions we ask. We ask God, God, why is this happening? Why, why in my life, why as hard as I work and the harder I work, 
it seemed like I'd get absolutely nowhere. A well-known songwriter, Bill Gaither, and of course, you know, the Bill Gaither uh, Corral, the Bill Gaither Trio, the Bill Gaither Community, which is made up of the Gaither Vocal Band, and so many wonderful songs over the years. Bill Gaither wrote a song entitled, Songs That Answer Questions. I think these lyrics will give you an idea of what I want to accomplish in this time together over the next several weeks or months. The first set of lyrics, and I've just pulled out two sets of lyrics that I think kind of describe what I'm looking for. The first set of lyrics goes this way. I don't want to spend my life writing songs to answer questions that nobody's even asking anyhow. And then the second verse is going to be kind of our guide as we go through this period of time. I don't want to spend my life preaching sermons that give answers to the questions no one is asking anyway. You know, I tell people I have all the answers. Unfortunately, they don't fit anybody's question. Nobody ever asked me the question that I have the answer to. It's always something I have to go, wait, time out. Let, let, me, let me look. Let me check this out and see. Now, I've always thought and always known, really, not just thought, that God's answer to questions are always better than my answers to questions. So we're going to begin to search God's word to find those answers to questions that come up. In a search through the scriptures, when we looked at the why questions in the scriptures, there are approximately 261 specific questions. We're not planning on preaching through all 261 of them because we would be here till Christmas. But the majority of these are questions that people still ask today. Some of the questions are what God asks of us. I decided on the center end to focus in on the questions that we ask. And the most prevalent question always zeroes in on why is there pain in the world? Why does God allow pain and suffering? Now, we all have a different way that we can answer that question. But ultimately, fundamentally, that question's at the heart of every other question we ask. Why does God allow hurt? Why does God allow pain? Why does God allow death? Why does God allow car accidents, cancer? Why does God allow all of these things? Well, it again is a question that mankind has been asking since the beginning of time. And it will drive you crazy asking that question of yourself time and time again. If you walked into a library or for instance, a bookstore, if there are any, many left anymore, if you walk into Books A Million in Jackson, there is an entire section on self-help, an entire section on how to help yourself be wealthy, how to help yourself be healthy, how to help yourself be wise, how to help yourself with money, how to help yourself with relationships, how to help you get out of a relationship, how to help you get into a relationship. The list just goes on and on and on. And when you walk into the bookstore or into the library, you see that huge <coughs> bookshelf full of self-help books that cause us to consider our pain, whether it's emotional or physical or spiritual. And we ask ourselves again, why does God allow pain and suffering? So here we go as we try to answer the question this morning, why does God allow pain? There's always a starting place. So we're going to start in probably the best-known book that talks about suffering in the entire scriptures. Even people who consider themselves to be, at best, agnostics know who Job is. So let me give you some selected verses from Job here in just a moment. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. 
This man was blameless and upright. He feared God. He shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters. Bless his soul. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yokes, uh, yokes of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and he had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. Okay, this was the guy in the entire East. He was the richest, he was the best known, he had everything all together, and I, many times in my life, you're probably like me, many times in my life I've had everything together, and then I set it down somewhere and forgot what I did with it, and so I didn't have it together anymore because I couldn't figure out what I'd done with it. And I say that with kind of tongue-in-cheek to tell you this, we've all found ourselves in a situation where things are going well, and all of a sudden, and there's chaos and cacophony. So let's skip on to verse 8. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Now let me stop there just a moment. This is an awfully unusual dialogue going on. It's a dialogue going on between Satan and God centering on Job. Satan's looking at Job, and he's perfect, and he's upright. He hasn't done anything wrong. And God is in this. It's almost like we're setting God up to be kind of proud of himself. And God goes, Satan, have you looked at my servant Job? He's upright. He's blameless. He does everything right. Nothing in his life is contrary to my teachings. And Satan goes, well, oh, sure he is. Well, how does that go? This goes on to verse 9. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied, Have you not put a hedge of protection around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the works of his hands so that his flocks and his herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. What's Satan saying? Satan's going, Well, of course he worships you. You've given him everything you wanted. You've given him all these oxen, all, all these yokes of oxen, all of these donkeys, all of the cattle, all of the sheep, all of the lambs, all of the family. And he goes on and on and on. And Satan goes, well, you've built a hedge of protection around him. Nothing affects Job. Job has it made. Everything is copacetic in Job's life. Well, of course he worships you. And of course he calls out to you because you've given him and protected him every day of his life. The Lord said to Satan, after Satan kind of gets rid of the rant that he goes on, here's what God says. Well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself did not lay a finger. Can't you just see it? Satan's rubbing his hands together going, oh boy, this is going to be such fun. Because he's probably been looking at Job and thinking, well, everybody looks at Job and thinks he's favorite of God. Highly favored, greatly blessed. And he is, and he was, and he was again, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. So the Lord said to Satan, everything that he has, his sheep, his oxen, his yokes, are in your power. But on Job himself, do not lay a finger. Then the servants bring news. I mean, literally, God and Satan come to an agreement, and the servants start coming in and going, your sons and daughters are in the house. And a terrible wind came up, a storm, they're all dead. And by the way, somebody, the Cushamites came and stole your sheep. And somebody came and stole your oxen. 
and somebody came and stole your this and your that. And so guess what? Job probably looks at the servant and goes, what's left? And the servant goes, me, that's it. I'm the only one left. And so they bring the news that Job lost everything. At this point, Job got up, shook his fist at God, and goes, God, how dare you? Probably what we would have done, but that's not what Job did. Job got up, tore his robe, which designated or exemplified he was in mourning, and he shaved his beard, which was kind of like the sackcloth and ashes situation. When you're in sackcloth and ashes, it's to show the world that you're mourning for something in your life. Then he fell to the ground in worship. Catch that word. He fell to the ground in worship. Now, let's, let's put this kind of back on stage and let you look and listen. Everything that Job had was, and it was a multitude of riches. Everything that he has has just been like dust in the wind, as Kansas would say. It's gone. There's nothing left. He has nothing. He has no oxen. He has no family. He's probably not a spring chicken at this point. And he's thinking, what in the world am I going to do? But what does he do? He throws himself to the ground in worship. That makes no sense. But then he says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord taken us away. May the name of the Lord be praised in all of this. Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. He fell to the ground in worship. And we're looking at that, at least I'm looking at that and going, you know, the hands on the head kind of thing. How could this be? You've just taken everything Job has. How could you, what do you mean he fell to the ground in worship? How can you worship when God's taken everything you have away? Well, in the next 36 chapters, we watch Job's friends come to him. First of all, they attempt to, oh, Job is going to be okay. And I'm thinking, how can you tell somebody who's lost every member of their family and all their riches that it's going to be okay? But they pat him on the back and they say it's going to be okay. They comfort Job. But eventually they wind up missing the mark on the compassion scale. They do more harm than they do good, suggesting that maybe Job was really a bad guy after all, and that's why bad stuff came his way. But in reality... Job was just what he seemed to be. He was a good man in the midst of a really bad situation torn between Satan and God. So for the next 37 chapters, Job asked the angry question. Job, at this point, is a little, little upset, and he says, God, why me? In the 38th chapter, God finally ends his silence, and he goes to Job, he appears to Job, and he speaks to Job. That's <laughs> what he says. God is looking at Job, and he goes, so, Job, tell me, when I was mapping out the universe and laying down the foundation of the world upon which you now stand, just where were you? And then he goes on. God never answered Job's question the way Job wanted. He simply pointed out that Job didn't have a clue what was going on, and he better think twice before parading his goodness in front of the creator of all things that are great and good. God is saying, look, Job, when I was laying out the size and the extent of every universe, when I was creating the planets, when I was creating you, where were you, Joe? Were you there with me? Do you think you're on a level ground with me? Do you somehow think that you and I are peers? No, we're not. God is saying, when I created the heavens and the earth, where were you? And after God spoke, Job got his comeuppance. He cringed. 
And it works that way. When God has a tendency to get a hold of you, when God does get a hold of you, you have a tendency to listen. Job has to humble himself and eat just a little dust. He apologizes to God. Things went much better for him afterwards. Now, the reality of trouble and suffering in the human family is not in question here. We all know that everybody suffers. We all know that there's problems in life. We've all had our share of that. Job even states the reality when he says, having trouble is as certain as the flames causing sparks to fly upward from a fire. The real question we have is this. If God is good and God is kind, again we ask, why do we suffer? We want to know why God thought it necessary to put suffering in this life. Let me put it to you in, in a way I think will help you understand. I have a gift in my right shoulder. It's called arthritis. Uh, didn't realize that I had that until about a year ago. And I realized that I was having trouble bringing my arm. This is about as high as I can bring it without it feeling like somebody's stabbing me with a hot ice pick. In fact, it has destroyed my jump shot. Not that I ever had one. Uh, by the way, I, I'm not throwing the football the way I used to. I mean, I'm down to like four or five yards when I used to throw six or seven. Uh, it's destroyed my sports career. And I try to lift that arm. And every once in a while, I'll do something like pick up a drill at Shelton Tree at the workday and start drilling things. And I'm thinking, oh, this is not doing my shoulder any good. This does not feel well. But Janice accuses me, I don't know where she got this concept, but accuses me of being a little stubborn. Uh, it's a possibility. I, I'm, I'm at least going to admit it. But I can't do the things that I used to want to do with my, or used to be able to do with my arm. It's the kind of pain that makes you wonder, are you a direct descendant of Job? It's the kind of pain that's my companion for everything I tried to lift in a day. For good measure, it throbbed all day. Extra strength Tylenol by the truckload didn't do any good at night. Cortisone injections would hold it off for about two, three weeks, and then they wear off. Finally, the doctor said the S word, surgery. And I thought, no, not going there, not doing that. And he said, but you don't, have to, you don't understand, Mr. Brown. We would go in. We would open up your shoulder. We would scrape the bone. And I'm thinking, oh, time out. You lost me right there. But he goes through this detail and he says, the good news is you will get 100% motion back again. And I'm thinking, okay. So I've got to wear a cast if I have the surgery. I have to wear it in a sling. I'm right-handed. So I'm thinking, I can't even read my right-handed writing. How in the world can I write with my left hand? And I can't type my sermons because I will be typing like this instead of like this. I can't play piano and saxophone. There's so many things I can't do when that right shoulder is immobilized. And so, needless to say, I've not had the surgery, and I probably will not have the surgery until it gets to the point that I can either not ignore the pain any longer, or I can't ignore my wife fussing at me any longer, until finally I go, okay, I give up. You can just write out my sermons, I'll dictate to them. So, the pain gets my attention. And I think maybe that's the reason that the pain is there. It got Job's attention. I believe that one of the benefits of trouble and suffering is it gets your attention. But to tell you the truth, there are only three things I could say about your question, why do we suffer? If you came to me and said, Brother Keith, why do we suffer? Why do we have pain? I would have three answers. It's a fair question. Answer number two, it was Job's question. 
answer number three. I don't have the slightest idea because I really fundamentally don't understand pain, but I think I'm beginning to get a glimmer of understanding. There's a lot of stuff offered by preachers, uh, philosophers, and skeptics to try to make us believe that somebody on planet Earth has completely understood God, but that's only conjecture. I've never met that person. Some say God punishes sins, and that's why we suffer. Now, if that's true that God punishes sin, I can buy that, okay? We sin, we get punished. That makes sense. What about children who are killed by roadside bombers in Afghanistan, Baghdad, random senseless shootings in Memphis, Nashville, Chicago? Do you think that was God punishing them for their sin? I don't think so. Some say we suffer because we have no faith, or that God is just mean and doesn't care what happens to his creation. That is totally, absolutely untrue. You can choose that if you will, but God never said that. God never acts in that way. God didn't answer Job, not even in the face of the oldest test case on record. God simply informed Job that a mortal could not understand, and that's our frustration, and that's the only answer we have because we can't understand God's ways. Some suffering is in God's hands only. We won't know why until we see him face to face. So the question comes to mind, preacher, how am I supposed to live with that lack of understanding? Well, where does that leave us in all of our pain and suffering? How can we remain somewhat sane in the face of brutality, the brutality of men with men, women with women, men to women, women to men, natural disasters that kill people, children who die senselessly or abused? How can anybody accept that? The same answer, Job asked it. It's a fair question. I don't know. The philosopher said, preacher, tell me something of your convictions. I have doubts enough of my own. I couldn't agree more with that. And so because I'm not smarter than Job, and I'm definitely not smarter than God, I'm going to leave you the way God left Job. We were not there when God created the universe. We don't understand. We do not understand the most infinitesimal fraction of the depth and breadth of who God is what he's done. And if we cannot understand even the basics of creation in which we live, how can we possibly begin to understand the motives and purpose of the creator who is greater than all of his creation? He's told us who he is in Jesus Christ. Jesus came to us and said, do you want to know the Father? Look at me. Follow me, love me, commit your life to me, for in me dwells all of what is the fullness of the Father. When you see me, you know God. Does that make it all right? Right. Do you mean if I put my faith in Jesus Christ, I can expect all the suffering I've had in my life to just vanish? Whether self-inflicted or deserved or undeserved, that's not the point. Jesus is not a self-help ATM machine where we put in a prayer and pop out a package healing for what ails you. Rather, it's a matter of the created being getting in step with the creator so that he can direct your path away from sin and bring you back closer to him. Your suffering is just that. You're my suffering. It serves a purpose. And God may or may not reveal that purpose to you in your life. All that we can say about it is that you have a choice to do one of two things. You can attempt to figure suffering out, in which case you will wind up in the madness of Job and at odds with God, or you can finally do what Job did, submit. You can trust God's grace and know that God is good. That's hard to do. Let me give credit where credit is due. It is hard to do what Job finally did, which is submit. 
in choosing to trust God, you will not eliminate suffering from your life altogether. It's too much a part of the human condition. But the Bible says that the end of Job's days were better than the beginning. Whether that's in this life or the next, it's not bad to trust the voice out of the whirlwind. I choose grace. I choose God's love. I choose God's expectation of goodness in my life. I choose to love God and cling to him. And either way, know this, no matter how strong your faith is, no matter how weak your faith is, it is his grace that will give you peace. Paul found that out. Do you remember Paul had the thorn in his flesh? We never knew exactly what it was. We don't know if it was arthritis in his shoulder, a bum leg, problems with breathing. I don't know. We don't know exactly what happened because it never specifically, and I think it on purpose, does not tell us what Paul's thorn in the flesh was, so all of us can identify with it. Some of us may have migraines. Some of us have arthritis in our shoulder. Some of us may have bad knees and have had surgery or having to have surgery. And those are all things that we can kind of attribute because Paul did not specifically say what his thorn in the flesh was. And he prayed that God would take it away. Paul was a great man of faith. What does God do? God chooses to let Paul keep that thorn in the flesh. And he whispers to Paul's heart these words. Paul's heart was filled with this statement. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. God may choose to heal your pain, your relationship, your bankruptcy, your cancer. He may choose to give you Paul's strength through your pain. Either way, his choice will be better than your choice. Some possibilities. If God chooses pain, in other words, you pray, and that pain is still in your life. Here's some things to do. Number one, don't run away from the pain. Embrace it. It's God's reminder. It's God's way of reminding us that he's leading you and loving you. Remember, you've not yet been hung on a cross with nails driven through your hands and your feet and a crown of thorns jammed on your head. So don't run from the pain. Embrace it. Neither are you paying for the weight of the sins of the whole world. Neither are you innocent of sin. Jesus is all of those things. Your pain is teaching you Christ's likeness, so don't run away from it. Number two, don't despise it. Pain is one of the few warning systems that the body has to help it heal. Dr. Paul Brandt is a specialist in leprosy. I did not realize until this last couple of weeks preparing the sermon that leprosy was still as prevalent, still as extant, in existence as it is. Leprosy is still a real thing. And Dr. Brandt talked about that those who have leprosy are prone to lose their extremities. And the reason that they lose those extremities is because they lose the sense of touch. They lose the pain receptors. They don't understand that their hand is stuck in a furnace. They don't understand that they just cut off with a skill saw two of their fingers. They have no feeling because they have no pain receptors, no feeling, nothing to tell the body, whoa, that's dangerous, get away from there, they end up losing their extremities. Thirdly, learn to love in the presence of pain. Don't you wish life was perfect? Don't you wish life was copacetic? Don't you wish everything was good? You know, don't you wish, don't I wish, don't we wish that we never had pain? that there was never suffering. Learn to love in the presence of pain. C.S. Lewis, many of you know that name. He wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. He wrote a little off the wall little book that I challenge you to read if you get the opportunity called The Screwtape Letters. And it's 
letters from Satan to a junior demon who was in training to become one of the major demons set loose on the world. Great writer, but at one time he was an atheist. His mother died when he was nine years old. His father had no love for him. He kept him in clothes and occasionally in food, and that was about the extent of it. C.S. Lewis, at a young age, saw the cruelty and the brutality of World War I firsthand. He was trapped in that trench warfare of World War I. He received extensive physical wounds and mental and emotional wounds on the battlefield. He rejected any idea of a loving God. He totally rejected the concept that there was a creator who loved us. He buried himself in books and scholarly pursuits of academia. He insulated himself from the possibility of love and relationships. He reasoned that a God who allowed that kind of pain would not be welcome in human life. And excluding that God he couldn't see, he isolated and insulated himself from the humans around him he could have seen. And then he met joy, not the emotion joy, he met a lady, a young lady by the name of Joy Gresham. And for a while, wow, C.S. Lewis's life was turned upside down because he had met the one who made him complete, who connected all the wiring, who made him believe that it was possible to find joy and the love around him. And he lived happily ever after. No, not really. He learned how to love. He learned how to be loved. It wasn't easy because Joy died an agonizing death from cancer just a few short years after they were married. If you ever watched a movie about C.S. Lewis's life, it chronicles their life together. And at the end, C.S. Lewis kind of summarizes life. He summarizes the experience of having been loved and being loving in the midst of pain. Here's what he said. Why love? If loving hurts so much, I have no answers anymore. Only the life that I live. Twice in that life I have been given the choice. Once as a boy, and now as a man. The boy chose safety. The man chose suffering. The pain now is part of the happiness then. That's the deal. That's what the scriptures are telling us. The pain and trouble are part of the deal. Job tells us as surely as the sparks fly upward, that pain is part of the happiness God is waiting for us. And he said that's part of the deal. Let me close an illustration. If you took a bar of steel, oh, nothing huge, about this size, by this size, it would weigh about 20 pounds. If you took that bar of steel and you made it into horseshoes, it would be worth about $10. If you took that bar still made it into sewing needles, it would be worth about $350. If you took that piece of steel and made it into knife blades, like case double X knives, it's worth about $32,000. But if you took that bar of steel, drilled it down, made watch springs out of it, it would be worth about $250,000. Can you imagine what that poor bar of steel goes through to go from being worth $10 to $250,000? The more it's manipulated, the more it's beaten down, the more it's hammered, the more it's passed through the fire and beaten and pounded and polished, the greater the value. Close with one more illustration. There was a silversmith 
many, many years ago at an outside bazaar, and he had a pot, and he was cooking silver. And a lady stopped and was intrigued by what he was doing. And she watched him as he would heat the pot hotter and hotter and hotter until bits of metal would float to the top, detritus and to debris. And he would take and he would skim that off and he would put it in a cup. And he continued to do that until the silver continued to melt and float to the top. And finally the lady said, how do you know when you're finished? I understand what you're doing, but how do you know when you're finished? The silversmith looked at her and said, I know that I'm finished when I can see myself in the silver. I think we're finished with this life and our growth in this life and our dealing with troubles in this life when we can look and see Jesus Christ. Hear the word of God from the book of Revelation. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things, the pain, the uncertainty, will have passed away. That's what God is saying to us. There's going to be pain. There's going to be hurt. There's going to be times in your life when you wonder why God, why but God is still a God who loves you beyond any ability for me, at least, to enunciate. God loves you more than you can ever imagine. God is the kind of God who says, I don't care how far you've gone. I don't care how bad you've been. I don't care what you've done in your life. I just want to open my arms, and I want you to run back. And I'm going to pick you up, and I'm going to carry you finally understand that my love is so much greater than any pain you could have ever gone through. Would you pray with me? Lord, we stand before you and we stand before you as people who don't understand sometimes. We want to understand. We try to understand. We, we try to look at all the big picture. We try to answer the questions of why is there pain in the world? Why is there hurt in the world? And sometimes we just can't quite grasp or put our mind around, get our mind wrapped around what is happening in this world. Help us to know this. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak. But he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. It's a simple child's rhyme. But it contains the essence of who God is. Jesus loves me. I know this. And because I know that, I can suffer through whatever pain and degradation and hurt and ostracization and chastisement that the world might bring upon me. Because there will come a day... There will come a time when every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of Lords. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And the people said, Amen.
what a thing to be standing on. I am standing on the promises of God. I'm not standing on what man has said. I'm not standing on what some book has said. I'm not standing on what some woman has told me. I'm not standing on what community has voted to do this or that. I'm not standing on anything other than the foundation of God's word. I'm standing on the promises of God. And God's promise, and God is a covenant keeper. God is a promise maker. God is a promise keeper. God does not break or is not slack concerning his promises. The promises God has said, I will be with you even to the end of the age. And so I challenge you to extend your hand, reach out, take the hand of Christ, and follow after him. And the things of this world will grow strangely dim, and the light of his glory and his grace. And the people together say, Amen. 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 Thank you.